Spiritual growth, becoming more and more like Jesus, it's like walking up a down escalator. It takes a significant amount of constant effort on our part to keep making progress. It takes significant effort because we're going against the pull of the world, the pull of our flesh, and the pull of the devil. There's always been resistance to being like Jesus, and there will always be resistance uh, to being like Jesus that will come from, again, a variety of places. And because of that constant resistance, it will take a significant amount of effort on our part in order for us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It takes consistent effort on our part because you can't stand still in the Christian life. Again, if you picture it like walking up a down escalator, when you stop walking up the down escalator, you don't stay in the same spot. You start going down. It's the same way in our spiritual life. When you stop making progress, you stop giving all diligence to add to your faith, then what you do is you don't stay the same. You begin to go down. You begin to lose progress. You begin to to sort of degress and become less and less like Jesus. So we have to put forth continual effort to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Uh, And spiritual growth, it takes just effort because it's not automatic. That's why Scripture warns us uh, to make every effort to add to our faith. That's why Scripture warns us about Christians who by this time, the Bible says, they should be able to teach others, but they still need themselves to be taught the basic principles of the knowledge of God. That's why we're warned about immature Christians in 1 Corinthians who are causing trouble within the church. Very often, almost always, when there are there is strife and division in the church, you can trace it back to people who should be mature as believers. They've been saved long enough that they should be found, have found and used their spiritual gifts and be doing the things that God would have them to do. But instead, they are no more like Jesus than they were on the day that they're saved. Those people typically and always start trouble. Now, even though it does take this continual, consistent effort on our part to grow, we can grow. We are meant to grow. We are meant to be more and more like Jesus if not a daily basis, but a weekly basis. I mean, we are regularly meant to be growing and changing in our lives. This is God's will for our lives, that we would be like Jesus. And since that is God's will, and I've wondered, why is it that we don't grow? Why is it that we often walk up the down escalators for a while, then we decide for whatever reason we're not going to move forward anymore? And I think there are three primary reasons for it, as I've thought and prayed about it through the years. The first is that we're unwilling to change. Growth requires change. I mean, that is a a rule without exception. You cannot become like Jesus while staying exactly like you are today. You have to change. Now someone, I was sharing this with someone once and they pushed back and they said, yeah, but the Bible says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. To which I responded, absolutely, but you ain't Jesus. Jesus is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. And unless you're just like Jesus, there's room for growth. And growth requires change. We cannot grow spiritually and stay exactly the way that we are. We have to be willing to change values, priorities, attitudes, actions, reactions, the way we think, the way we speak, the way we use our time, the way we spend our money. God has control over all of that and we have to be willing to change in those areas. I think another reason that we stop moving forward is we stop doing what we know to do. Now, while spiritual growth does take consistent effort on our part, 
and it is hard work, it's really not complicated. There are basic things that we do that add to our faith. We, we read our Bibles, we pray, we fast, we come to church, we give, we find and we use our spiritual gifts, and we, we, we do these basic things, and we just do them over and over and over again. And what often happens to people who, who stop growing is they have gotten away from some basic area or another. They've stopped reading their Bible. They've stopped praying. They've stopped coming to church. They've stopped giving. They've stopped using their spiritual gift. They've just stopped doing the basic things that help us to grow and become more and more like Jesus. And, and then a final reason, and possibly the one that is over all of them, is that we become comfortable in our spiritual life. Comfort leads to complacency, and complacency leads to apathy. When we're comfortable in our spiritual life and we're complacent and apathetic, we don't change because we don't want to change. We, we are the way we want to be. We are comfortable with our level of devotion. We are comfortable with our level of Bible knowledge. We are comfortable with the way that we live and our level of morality. We're comfortable with our values and priorities and attitudes and actions and reactions being the way that we are. And since we're comfortable here, we just don't want to move. We're not going to necessarily become hateful and hate Christians and turn away from the church or anything like that. But when the Bible is preached or taught and it challenges some area of our life that we're comfortable in, we're just going to dismiss it. Right? We're not going to wrestle with, is that, is that really what the Bible says? Is that what it means? Is that what I'm supposed to do? If there's conviction, we're going to push that down. We, we, we just aren't going to do much of anything. I mean, ultimately, that's what it boils down to. We aren't going to do much of anything. It's kind of like when you, if you mow the lawn on a hot day and you've worn out from mowing and doing it and you come in and you get your Gatorade and you take your shower and you sit down on the couch in the air conditioning and, and that's it. You're happy right there. You, you don't want to do anything else. You don't want to sweep the floor. You don't want to cook dinner. You don't want to go edge the lawn. You're done. You're just, oh, this is, this is wonderful. That's what being comfortable in our spiritual life is like. We just can't be bothered to do anything else. Um, and that is probably the overarching thing behind all of it, is that we just become that sort of comfortable in our life. Now, spiritual stagnation like this, it is very, very common in Christianity. It is very common. Um, but make no mistake, it is never God's will. God's will is that we would be renewed, be transformed by the renewing of our mind. God's will is that we would be changed from glory to glory, to be more and more like Jesus. It, uh, and that's an important thing. You, you can't, I can't, get comfortable and stay and just quit. And This is where I'm going to be and pretend I'm in the center of God's will doing exactly what He wants me to do because I'm not. That sort of apathy, that sort of complacency is moving us aside from what God would have for us. God's will is that we would grow closer and grow deeper in our relationship with Him. That we would consistently become more and more like Jesus. Now, if we have become complacent, if we have sort of stagnated. We may wonder, what can I do to jumpstart it? What can I do to kind of get going again? That's what we're going to look at today. Open your Bible to Ephesians 3. Look at verses 14 through 19. When you find that, I want you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Paul writes, for this cause, 
I bow my knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of God, the love of Christ, which passeth understanding, and that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. The title of the message uh, today is Experiencing the Fullness of God. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We thank you, Lord, that you have loved us with an everlasting love and that you have sent your Son to die on the cross for our sins. That through your Spirit and through your Word, you have drawn us to Jesus so that we could see the depth of our depravity, the the wickedness of our sin, and we could turn to Jesus and be saved. We thank you, Lord, that you have plans for our lives. It is an awesome thought to know that the great and the mighty God of the Bible, He thinks about us and He has plans for us, things for us as individuals to do and to be. And Lord, these are not little things. To be like Jesus. To be like your son. What a, what, a, what a powerful thought. Help us to be in awe over that. Help us, Lord, to see that as what a great goal to have in our life. But to see it, Lord, as something that we are to make progress in. That, Lord, it's not just something to say, well, that would be nice. But to see that we are to put forth effort. To make every effort to add to our faith so that we can be more and more like Jesus. Father, search our hearts in this time today. And see if there's any sort of complacency and apathy and spiritual comfort and stagnation within us. And where it is, kill it. Lord, convict us of that today. Let us not be able to be complacent. Let us not. Be able to be apathetic. Let us not ever be comfortable where we are, but always be seeking more and more to be like Jesus. Guide us in this time that we could lay aside the cares of life and just have ears to hear, hearts that would obey all that you have for us. Holy Spirit, come and fill me and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. And as I preach on the outside, Holy Spirit, preach on the inside to make the Word real, living, and active that we would be changed and we would be who we're meant to be. Have your way, Father. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, if you've been at our church for a while and you kind of keep up with what we preach, you'll notice that we we preached this passage last year. Um, In fact, it was like, what, February, Sharon? Is that what it says in your Bible? February. Sharon, I know Sharon knows because she writes it in her Bible. Um, February of last year I preached this, and I considered skipping it since it was so recent. Normally I try to go at least two years before I preach the same passage again on a Sunday morning. But we're going through the book, and this is an important book for keeping the flow of thought that Paul is making. And the reality is, Scripture is so amazing that we never really exhaust the riches of Scripture. We could look at the same passage next week and we would get new insights from it. We could look at this passage week after week for a month and we would just never exhaust the end of what we have. So we are going to look at it again. Now, as we look at this prayer that Paul prays, there are three facts, I think, that stand out. One is that Paul prayed for their spiritual life, which is significant. He didn't pray for anything for them physically. 
Instead, he prays for them. His prayer is completely for them to go deeper in their relationship with Jesus, to, to be more and more like Jesus. Secondly, is that Paul's prayer has a, a particular spiritual goal. Each petition builds on the one before it until you reach the completion at the end of verse 19 that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Right, so all of this prayer, it is building towards spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, so that the disciple will experience all the fullness of God, which is a great phrase, and we'll talk about that at the end of the message. And then thirdly, and this is a key point, not the key point, but it's a key point. We are all meant to experience all the fullness of God. What Paul is praying here is now recorded for us as Scripture, so we can say... Without a shadow of a doubt, everything we're going to look at, this is God's will and God's want for our lives. There's not one thing we're going to cover this morning that you say, we could say, well, that's for some people, but that's not for all people. Well, that was then, and that's not now. No. Everything we're going to talk about, including being filled with all the fullness of God, that is just as much for you and I today as it was for the Ephesians on the day that Paul wrote it. And in light of that, that it is God's will for us to be filled with all the fullness of God, can you say, honestly, that you are filled with all the fullness of God? Spoiler alert, you're not. This means that we cannot allow ourselves to be comfortable and complacent in our lives. Why? Why can't I get to a place and say, this is good, because there's more. Right? There is more to all the fullness of God that we are meant to have, that we are meant to experience, and I can't stay the way I am and experience the more. I must change. I must be willing to let God change me however He wants to change me so that I can be filled with all the fullness of God. But God's changing me also requires that I put forth consistent, continual effort. Right? I must do things. I cannot just sit down on the altar and say, Oh God, may I be filled with all of your fullness. And God makes a great big download into our lives and we get up and it's just like, Hooray! Now I can go off and still not do anything. It's not the way it works. There is stuff that we are meant to do if we are to experience all the fullness of God. And this passage shows us several Things that we must do. Some of what we must do to be filled with all the fullness of God. First, be secure in Christ. Paul says in verse 14, For this cause I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now bowing your knees for us, that doesn't really stand out. How many of us, when we pray, we kneel? Probably a lot of us. And if we don't now, because of age or infirmity, we probably did at one point in our lives. Most of us were taught to pray by getting on our knees to pray. So that's for us, is not anything that really stands out. But it was unusual for a Jewish man to get on their knees to pray. In Jewish culture, Jewish men did not typically kneel to pray. The most common way that they prayed was by standing. Right, so imagine in your mind, picture the, the, the pictures you've seen of Jewish men at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. Are they on their knees praying? No, they're standing as they pray. 
Kneeling in prayer was unusual and it indicated a deep humility, a deep emotion, and a great intensity of prayer. Right? So they didn't get on their knees and say, bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies, amen. Right? When they were kneeling to pray, they were fervent in prayer, they were passionate in prayer. There was something that had really gripped their heart and made them want to pray boldly and powerfully and with great intensity. And what made Paul kneel in prayer and pray with that humility, emotion, intensity is the first part for this reason. Now, the reason that Paul bowed was, was really kind of all that we've looked at in Ephesians up to this point. As Paul thought about all the stuff, remember last week we talked about that God had revealed stuff to him through His Spirit, about the will and the want and the ways of God. And as Paul thought about what God had revealed to him, it's almost like he was overwhelmed. He was almost overwhelmed at the greatness of God. Not that, not that God had revealed it to him. That's not what awed Paul. What awed Paul was that God would plan such great things for people. That the God of heaven, He would look down at those people from Ephesians 2 that are in rebellion, following the course of this world, who are children of disobedience, and He would say, I love them. I have plans for them. I want to do something in their lives. And I want to make them into something for my glory. As Paul thought about that, it was just almost too much for him. And he fell to his knees. And he began to cry out to the Lord in prayer. I was going to have us look at, at those things, but I, I know that would take too much time. And Kelly and Christina have already said I can't preach for too long. They both told me that on Wednesday night. So I have to keep it short. Uh, but just kind of review. And if you want my notes, I can give them to you. Ephesians 1.3. Paul says we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. Think about that. In Christ, you and I are blessed with every spiritual blessing. Not some, not a few, not even a lot. Every spiritual blessing. In Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, we have been chosen by God and then adopted by Him. Right? I mean, we are by nature the children of wrath. We are not naturally the children of God. The Bible says that there are the children of the devil and the children of God. That by nature we are children of the devil, children of wrath. But God looked down at that, at that person, that disobedient child that was you, that is me. And He looked down and He said, I love them. I want them. And He chose us. And He sent His Spirit to convict us and to reveal Jesus to us. And then He claimed us for His own. And He made us His child. We have been redeemed and forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. Through the blood of Christ. May we never forget the price. That our salvation cost us. He wanted to give us every spiritual blessing, but there was a price. He wanted to choose us and adopt us, but there was the price. That price was the blood of His Son. We have been, we are sealed and secured by the Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, the moment we're saved, He comes to live inside of us. And we are the temple of God individually. Think about that. In the Old Testament, that, that holy of holies, that place where the very presence of God resided, that the average person could not go into because God was there. 
That's you. That's me. Because the Spirit of the living God lives within us. When we were spiritually dead, and we were children of wrath, and we would have stayed that way, God intervened. And God reached down. And God drew us off of that path. And God forgave our sins. And God gave us a new nature. And God changed us and made us trophies of His grace. I mean, I mean do you ever think about that? Ephesians 2, that first seven verses, what it says, those first three verses, that's who we were. And if there was not the but God in verse 4, that's who we would still be. You're not a follower of Jesus because you're smart. Or because you're moral. Or because you made good choices. Or because you were raised in a Christian family. None of that helped. All of that left you. Following the course of this world. And a child of disobedience. But God is the reason that you're a Christian. But God is the reason that you're a disciple. But God is the reason your sins are forgiven. Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to fulfill a God-ordained purpose. Again, can you imagine? The God of the universe. He looked down at Guyman, Oklahoma. And He saw you. And He saw me. And He knew what we would be like and the mistakes that we would make, and the sins that we would commit, and the rebellion of our hearts. And He still chose us. He still called us. He still adopted us. And He said, I want them. And I have something just for them to do. I mean, isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? To know that the great and the awesome God of the Bible has something for you and me. In particular, we're to do for His glory. Ephesians 2, 11 and 12, God gave us hope when we were without hope. When we were children of wrath, we had no hope. Our hopes were false because hope is only found in God. Whatever we were hoping would save us from the wrath to come. Whatever we were hoping would get us into heaven. It was going to fail. It was not going to get us there. And so we were hopeless And probably hopelessly deceived. But God intervened. And God took a hopeless person. And He gave them hope. And then Ephesians 3, 11 and 12. That we have constant and confident access to God. I think this is something we miss in our day. In the Old Testament. They couldn't just go into the presence of God like we can. They didn't have the kind of access that we have. Hebrews 10 invites us to go beyond the veil into His presence, into that Holy of Holies where only the high priest would go. You and I, at any moment of any time of the day or night, we can call upon God and God is so present with us in that time, it's as though we've walked through the veil and we're standing before the ark of God in the temple of Jerusalem. We're as close to God there in our prayer as the high priest was when he went in. 
all of that and, and so much more. It's who we are. I mean, that's what we have. That's, that's who we are in, in Christ. And as Paul thought about all that God had done and all that God will do in the lives of disciples of Jesus, he's, he's nearly overwhelmed to the point that he, he falls to his knees in humility and emotion and intense prayer. We should take time regularly to think about what God has done for us. Because if, if we're honest, if we're honest, we are a deeply entitled people. The fact of the matter is, there are likely some here that as I talked about all that God has done for us, it's not even fascinating to you. You're just like, well, why wouldn't He do that? I'm awesome. We are so entitled, we just expect, well, of course, God is going to do these things for me. That's what God does. We have yet to, to really understand what we were before and be in awe of what He has done in us and through us and for us. Oh, but we should. And we should let those things drive us to our knees in humility and emotion and intensity, knowing that this is just a small taste, it's a small taste of all that is ours in Christ. It's just a small taste of being filled with all the fullness of God. And as we are driven to our knees in all of this, we should say, yes, this is true of me. This is who I am because of Jesus. In Christ, this is true. I'm, I'm flawed. I fail. Gosh, I even just full on rebel and sin at times. This is still true of me because of Jesus. If we're not secure in who we are in Christ, we'll think about the concept of being filled with all the fullness of God and we'll say, that's for other people. That's for Billy Graham. That's for famous Christians. That's for big name people. Regular people like me. We just don't get that. No dear friend. All the fullness of God is for all believers. All Christians. Know who you are in Christ. Believe who you are in Christ. Be secure in that identity. And then long, 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 for more. Secondly, trust God. Paul's prayer is filled with confident expectation. He absolutely believes God is going to do everything he says in this passage. He, as he reads this, he really believes that God is going to strengthen them with might and the inner man, that Christ is going to dwell in their heart, that they're going to comprehend the love of Christ. And that they will be filled with all the fullness of God. I mean, he's not like, God, that would be cool if you did that. It's just like, this is what, I know this is what you want to do. This is your will and your want for them. So as we look at what we're going to talk about today, we should be just as confident that this is God's will. That this is absolutely what God wants to do in us and through us and for us. That, that this is without question. 
I am a believer in Jesus Christ. This is God's will for me. Why can I be this confident? Well, first is because God is my Father. Right? Paul bows his knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. The idea that the whole family in heaven and earth is of disciples who have gone on to glory and those who are still on the earth. God is the Father of all those who believe in Jesus Christ. Now God is called Father um, by Paul around 42 times in his letters. Eight of those are found in the book of Ephesians. When we first trust in Christ for our salvation... We are adopted by God and we do become His children. Romans 8.15 says that we have not received a spirit of fear that brings us into bondage, but we have received the spirit of adoption that cries out, enables us to cry out, Abba, Father. Now, Abba, if you're not familiar with it, is a Hebrew term or an Aramaic term for Papa. It was like the first word that children often learned. And it was a term for their, their dad that was a term of respect and a term of intimacy because it referred to such a nearness such a close relationship Jewish people never referred to God as their personal Abba he was the father of the nation they wouldn't have said he was their personal Abba father and yet that's what Paul says here that's what Paul says in Romans Jesus changed all of this Jesus came and he died on the cross and he made it possible for us to be reconciled to God. He made it possible for us to be adopted as the children of God. He taught us to pray our Father who art in heaven. But knowing, seeing God as our Father, truly seeing Him as our Father, it should change our prayers. It it should give us confidence that God really is going to fill us with all the fullness of God. That we pray, God, fill me with this. That's not a too big request. That's not presumptuous. That is what God would want to do for us. Our confidence should be great. Jesus said that if we, being evil, if we know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? As a parent, do you like to give good things to your children? Do you like to be able to to let them have stuff, to bless them in their lives, to, to just do things for them? Sure. And as much as we like that, God likes it infinitely more. Because our motives at time, it could be selfish. Our motives at time could be sinful. Our motives at times could be all kinds of wrong. But God's never are. Just as, as much as we want to do good for our children, so much more than does God want to do good for His children. Our Father absolutely wants us to be filled with all the fullness of God. We should be confident in that. Trust God that that is the reality Of His want and His will for our lives. But not only is God my Father, but God is able. Paul is confident because God can grant things according to the the riches of His glory. 
The New Testament or the New Living Translation translates it as from his glorious unlimited resources. I like that. God has glorious unlimited resources. And so he can give whatever he needs to give. Now as he has glorious unlimited resources, he has glorious unlimited power. Look at verse 20. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or imagine according to power that's at work in us. So God has glorious unlimited resources and glorious unlimited power. And that glorious unlimited power is at work in us. So God has everything he needs to be able to fill us with all the fullness of God. He has the desire. He has the power. He has the resources. But what we have to do is we have to trust We have to believe that God can really do this in us. We have to believe that God would really do this for us. We have to believe that God's really out for our best. That when He says change this or stop that or do this, it's not in an effort to to twist us under His thumb. It's not in a way to say do what I say because I'm God. He's saying I have something better for you. If I'm calling on you to let this go, it's because I want to give you something better. If I'm calling on you to grab onto this, it's because what I'm grabbing onto is better than anything else. Trust me. Trust my love. Trust my concern. Trust me. We have to trust God. Without trusting in God, we will never experience all the fullness of God. Because we have to trust Him to change. And we have to trust Him to keep on going when it's hard. We have to trust Him. When He says do this or do that. That it is for our good. And for His glory. The idea of being filled with all the fullness of God. It seems like a mountain or a pie in the sky kind of an idea. Wow, that would be awesome. But it's real. And it's something we can have. An experience in our life that God wants to give us. He has all the love necessary to do it for us. He has all the resources necessary to do it for us. He has all the power necessary to do it for us. But the question isn't with God. The question is with us. Are we willing to trust Him in whatever He wants done so that He can fill us with more of His glory, more of His power? Thirdly, we need to be strong in the Spirit. The end of verse 16, he says, they would be strengthened with my, by his spirit in the inner man. Now, let's kind of unpack the idea of being strengthened with my, by his spirit in the inner man. Now, the inner man is essentially what we might call our, our spirit. The spirit, people are, humans are three parts. We're body, soul, and spirit. Body is the physical part that we can see. Our soul is kind of like our emotions. Spirit is the part of us that can know God, that can love God, and experience God. Well, the Spirit is the part of us that is naturally dead. When the Bible talks about being made alive in Christ, it's not talking about giving us physical life. We were physically alive. It's not about giving us spiritual life. We were spiritually dead, and the Holy Spirit quickened us and made us spiritually alive. And that spiritually alive, that alive spirit, it enables us now to, to know God in ways we couldn't have known before, to, to love God in ways that we couldn't have loved before, to just enjoy, really just enjoy God. That, that is a huge thing. To just enjoy the presence of God, the promises of God, the person of God. Uh, our, our spirit being alive is, is what enables us to delight in His Word. It what enables us to be renewed day by day. 
And, and what we see here is that we win or lose battles, our spiritual battles, based upon the strength of our spirit. Right? And our spirits are strengthened by the Holy Spirit. And we need that. Right? Because we, we face real spiritual battles. We'll eventually get to Ephesians 6 and talk about that. There are spiritual battles going on for our hearts, our souls, our minds, our families, our children, our lives all the time. And we're not going to win it by our own personal strength. We're not able to. We're not going to win it by willpower. We're not going to win it because we've been good moral people. N nothing we do in our natural self is going to win the battle. We, we need to be strengthened with His might by the Spirit and the inner man. That way we can stand against the wiles of the devil. That way we can withstand in the evil day and still be standing. That way we can follow the Spirit's leading instead of following our sinful nature. Right? We talk about the the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit is what enables us to love when we're tempted to hate. Right? To be patient when we want to be short-tempered. To have joy when we're tempted to be discouraged. To have peace when we're tempted to be anxious. To be kind when we're tempted to be cruel. To be morally good when we're tempted to be morally sinful. To be faithful when we're tempted to break our word. To be gentle when we're tempted to be harsh. Uh, to make the right choice when we're tempted to make the wrong choice. These things and, and much, much more. We are strengthened with might in our spirit by the spirit to do these sort of things. But we can't do it on our own. You do not have enough willpower in order to consistently do what God would have you to do. You will fail. You will fall. You will not be standing at the end of the spiritual battle on that evil day. You will lose unless you're strengthened with might on the inner man. Because the whole world is really kind of against us. The world is against us being strengthened and making those choices. The devil is against us being strengthened and making those choices. And in a lot of ways, our sinful nature is still there. And it's against us from making those choices. We can't stand against our spiritual enemies in our own strength. We will fail. Always, always, always. We will fail. So we must be strong in the Spirit if we're to experience, if we're to be strong in the Spirit, if we're to win spiritual battles. And we have to live victorious lives to experience all the fullness of God. I cannot live a life of sinful defeat and expect to experience all the fullness of God. And the only way to be victorious is to be strong in the Spirit. So we must be strong in the mighty power of God through the Holy Spirit. Uh, surrender to the rule and the reign of Jesus. And the clock is wrong, so don't look at it. Verse 17, Paul writes that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Uh, dwelling, there are two primary words in the New Testament that spoke of, of dwelling or living somewhere. One was like as a temporary resident. Think like a tourist. You go there, you see the sights. You may stay a night or two, get you a place to sleep, but you don't really unpack your duffel bag. Right? You just kind of live out of it and you move on when you're through. The other is a permanent resident. You go there, you unpack your duffel bag, you put the stuff in the, you know, in your chest of drawers, and then you throw your bag away because you're not going to need your home. You're going to stay there. The word that's used here is not that of a tourist, that of a permanent resident. Jesus wants to, to come and live in our hearts, not, not visit, not come in on the weekends and on Sunday mornings, but, but live permanently in our hearts. Now, the thing about Jesus living is that Jesus is Lord. 
And wherever Jesus lives, Jesus rules. So if I want Jesus to, to live in my heart, Jesus must rule in my heart. And so that's the choice I have to make. And the reason is that the heart is the control center for our lives. In our culture, the heart is the, the seat of the emotions. It's not so in the Bible. In the Bible, it was the bowels. Um, in, in the, but our heart was the control center of the emotions, or the control center of the life. What's in your heart comes out in your life. As the water reflects the face, so the heart reflects the man, is what the Bible teaches us. So if I want to live a pure life, to live for Jesus, then He has to live and rule in my heart. At the same time, if Jesus is living and ruling in my heart, it will be evidenced by my life. Right? I, I will have the same values that Jesus has. I will have the same priorities that Jesus has. I will have the same attitudes that Jesus has. I will take the same actions that Jesus takes. I will react to stressors like Jesus reacted. I will speak the way Jesus spoke. So the question, does Jesus rule and reign in your heart? Is that evidenced by our values, by our priorities? By our attitudes, by our actions, by our reactions, by our speech. If not, there's a reason. And there's one reason. And that reason is Jesus is not reigning and ruling in our hearts. When Jesus dwells in our heart, Jesus rules in our heart. And there are three truths about Jesus reigning in our lives. One is that Jesus reigns totally. Totally. Overall. That there's like no area of our life that Jesus does not rule. We see this in Scripture when Jesus says things like, deny yourself. What? Whatever I say. Take up your cross, an instrument of death. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Right? That's just like all of you get on the altar. I determine everything about your life. There is no area of our lives where Jesus is not meant to rule. That's huge. Right? Because, again, we, we often in our culture, we want to divide that up. But I cannot say I surrender to the rule and reign of Jesus except in my politics. I can't do it. I, I can't say I surrender the rule and reign of Jesus except in my speech. No, I can't do that. I can't say, I surrender to the rule and the reign of Jesus except in my finances. Mm -mm. I can't do that. I can't say, I surrender to the rule and the reign of Jesus except in my time. No, I can't do that. I can't say, I surrender the rule and the reign of Jesus except in my family. Mm -mm. No, I, I can't do that. Jesus is either Lord over all or Jesus is not Lord at all. There is no area of our lives where Jesus is not meant to rule. And where we are withholding one area from Him, we are essentially withholding every area from Him. Jesus, Jesus is not a desperate high school girlfriend. Just hoping you'll give Him some attention. Oh, please, please let me rule over something. Oh, you give me that? Woo, I so love that. That's good. Maybe there'll be more someday. Now, Jesus is Lord, the crucified and risen Lord, the agent of creation. He says, give me all. 
We say, well, everything but this. And he says, all or nothing. Jesus reigns totally. Jesus reigns continually. Surrendering the rule and the reign of Jesus is not a one-time decision. It is something we have to do over and over and over again. Literally, I would say often on a moment-by-moment basis because the world, the flesh, and the devil are always tempting us to resist the rule and the reign of Jesus. Jesus tells us to be peacemakers. The world tells us, the world, the flesh, and the devil tell us to stir up strife. Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek. The world, the flesh, and the devil tell us to get even. Jesus tells us to give up our lives for His sake and the sake of the gospel. The world, the flesh, and the devil tell us to save our lives for ourselves and our will and our wants and our desires. Jesus tells us to love our enemies, to bless those who persecute us, to do good to those who despitefully treat us. The world, the flesh, and the devil tell us to love those who love us, hate those who hate us, and get them before they get us. The world, the flesh, and the devil continually tell us to do something contrary to what Jesus is telling us to do. So we must continually surrender to Jesus on a moment-by-moment basis throughout our lives. And then Jesus reigns willingly. And what I mean by that, Jesus will not tackle us and twist our arm until we give. My brother used to do that. My brother would make me do his will. And by doing his will, what it meant was if I wouldn't do it, He would chase me down and he would twist my arm until I gave. Or or the worst of all, the worst big brother thing of all, right? He would sit over my over my face and drip spit down and pull it back up until I gave, right? Worst thing ever. Um, If you're a big brother and you did that, you're a horrible human being. Horrible human being. Um, Jesus isn't going to do that. He's not going to he's not going to to make us. What he expects is. That we would go back over all the stuff we've talked about. I saved you by my blood. I've loved you in everlasting love. I have manifold wisdom of God. I mean, all of these things I have, I know I do. Choose me. And then it's our choice. Right? And, and, and He does let us choose. If we choose not to, that, that's the choice He'll get, let us. I mean, we see it all throughout Scripture. right? We see when He called the twelve. He didn't run up behind them and smack them in the back of the head and grab them by the scruff of the neck and pull them off, did he? He walked up and he said, Hey, won't you come follow me? I'll make you a fisherman. And then he went. And they either followed or they didn't. Rich young ruler. Hey, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, Hey, here's what you can do. Sell all that you have. Give that money to the poor. Come follow me and have riches in heaven. And the dude turned and walked away. What did Jesus do at that point? Did He lower his standard? Did He say, give 10%, give some of it. I'll tell you what, just come with you and I'll, I'll kind of let you change your mind. No, He looked at His disciples and said, pretty hard for a rich person in the kingdom of heaven, isn't it? And he let that dude walk on. Church at Laodicea. One of the only churches in all the seven letters that received no commendation from Jesus at all. They were so bad. And He doesn't kick in the door and come in and demand that they bow to Him. What does He do? I stand at the door and knock. If somebody will open the door to me. I'll come in and I'll eat with them and they can eat with me. But it's their choice. So Jesus, you have to choose to surrender to Jesus. If you choose badly and there are bad consequences that come for it, Jesus will absolutely let you make that choice. He loves you enough 
to let you make your choice even when that is a bad choice. You must surrender to Him on your own. Make that decision. We cannot possibly experience all the fullness of God without being fully surrendered to the rule and the reign of Jesus. We just can't. He has to have all of us before we can get all of Him. We are meant to experience all the fullness of God, but we must surrender. And then, and then lastly, marvel at the love of God. Paul says, being rooted and grounded in His love, in love, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. Well, that's good. He wants us to know all the greatness of God's love. The dimensions He gives, it's like the width of God's love covers every person that has ever been or ever will be born. The length of God's love, it goes from the the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world and will carry with us on as we walk the streets of gold. The depths of God's love, it took Him to the tomb and it it goes by the cross and it rises to the throne of God where Jesus is ever making intercession for us. No one is outside the love of God. No one is beyond the reach of the love of God. No one. That's a big thing we have to understand. When we go out and we see whatever we see, and however we're tempted to respond negatively toward what we see, that is a person within the grasp of God's love. That is someone that Jesus loved enough to die for. That is someone the Father wants to adopt as His child. We have to know that. We have to know that. We cannot, we cannot experience the fullness of God and think God hates the same people our culture wants us to hate. I talk about politics a lot in a very negative way, if you're new here. And here's what I want you to know. We're moving into a political season. I don't know if you've noticed. We're starting to have one or two people running for president from the Democrat side, I think. Um, And right now, here's what the world tells you. Fox News says, they're all evil. They all are terrible. We should hate every one of them. Right? That's what Fox News says. But CNN is over here going, no, they're wrong. Hate them. They're terrible. They're worst thing ever. Global warming. End of the world. It's their fault. And they're saying, no, it's their fault. What a horrible human you are. Here's the reality. They're both horrible humans. We cannot let Fox News or CNN Determine who we think God loves. We cannot let Fox News or CNN determine who we think God wants to save. Make no mistake, God God is not on either side cheering one team on. God is the King of kings, Lord of lords, ruler over all. Both sides will one day answer and be accountable to Him. And if we let them determine who we think God loves, who we think God wants to save, we are failures as disciples of Christ. 
God's love covers them, whoever the them in our mind is. It's that big, it's that broad, it's that great. And we must understand that. And all of this leads to us experiencing the fullness of God. And that's such a great phrase. And the idea of the experiencing all the fullness of God, it seems to be that there is nothing lacking in our relationship and our experience of God. Now, this is a very Trinitarian passage, if you notice, right? Whereas, bow our knees to the Father. There is strengthened by the Spirit and Christ dwelling in our heart by faith. So the idea of being filled with all the fullness of God would be being filled with all the fullness of God the Father, being filled with all the fullness of God the Son, and being filled with all the fullness of God the Holy Spirit. So it means that there's nothing lacking in my relationship with the Father. There's nothing lacking in my relationship with the Son. There's nothing lacking in my relationship with the Spirit. But not only in my relationship, but in my experience. Right? That I experience all that I'm meant to experience from the Father. I'm, I experience all that I'm meant to experience from the Son. I experience all that I'm meant to experience through the Spirit. So you go through the Bible and you find. The Bible says there are certain things God does in us, through us, and for us. Certain experiences we have with Him. We find that there are certain things Jesus does in us, through us, and for us. Certain experiences we have with Him. Certain things the Holy Spirit does in us, through us, and for us. Certain things we experience through Him. What this means is that we experience all of that. Every bit of it. If we go through the Scripture, if it says this is something God the Father does in those who are His children, that we look at that and we say, that's for me. I'm meant to have that. We look at something that it says God the Son does for those who are His disciples. We look at that and we say, that's for me. I'm meant to have that. We look at something that says God the Spirit does. We look at that and we say, I'm meant to have that. That is for me. Now here's the thing about that. All of this is an issue of continual growth. Right? It is constant, forever moving. Because while being filled with all the fullness of God is the overall goal, it does not happen at once. It happens gradually over time. Because there is always more of God to know. There is always more of God to experience. But think about the greatness of God as He's described in Scripture. And imagine God as the greatness as the ocean. Right? You can go to the ocean and you can take a thimble and you can scoop out and you've got some of the ocean. That's not all the ocean there is to have. So you go back with a cup and you scoop out a cup. And now you've got more of the ocean than you had before, but there's still more of the ocean to receive. So you go with a 50 for a 10-gallon bucket, and you scoop out, and now you've got 10 gallons of the ocean, but there's still more of the ocean to have. So you get a 55-gallon bucket. Now you've got more of the ocean than you've ever had, but there's still more of the ocean that can be received. So you get a tanker truck, and you fill it up, and you go away, and now you've got more than you've ever imagined you could have, but there's still more of the ocean to receive. That's God. When we first get saved, we have like a thimble full of, of, of expectance, of, of ability to receive from God. And we get that. And we're full. But there's more. And as we grow, we grow to a cup. And then we grow to a bucket. And then a bigger bucket. And then a tanker truck. And then more and more and more. There is always more of God. My friends, right now, no matter how close to God you are, how devoted you are, there is more of God to experience. You do not have all the fullness of God there is that we're meant to have. There is always, always more. And that's why we can't get complacent in our spiritual lives. That's why we can't get there and stop because there's more. There's better. There's more stuff that God wants us to have. And that's the key thought. That's the key takeaway today. 
There's always more of God to know. There's always more of God to experience. We have not even come close to exhausting all there is to know and experience of God. There is always more. So we keep going. We keep walking up the down escalator. We keep putting forth significant, consistent effort. We keep changing when God tells us to change. We keep doing what we know we're supposed to do. And we never, ever, ever get comfortable. And we never get complacent. Because we know there's always more of God to experience. Let's bow our heads and